the common failure mode I see is someone just wants to get to five customers or sneak by $100,000 in ARR. So they are having a conversation with everyone under the moon. You can have a beautiful product, but if you're selling it to the wrong audience, it's going to look like you have a horrible product. And so I'm always telling my founders to do less or do more for fewer people. And you can always work your way out from there. But at the beginning, you want a laser-focused ICP. You want to be able to say, my customer looks like X. They hang out in Y places. They have this problem. Their company's probably this big. And this is how I'm going to sell to them. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. We've got a bit of a different episode of In-Depth today. I am really excited to be joined by Mecca Asonye, who's a fellow partner here at First Round. Mecca joined us exactly a year ago next week, so I thought it would be fun to invite him on to share some reflections, both on his transition from sales leader to full-time investor and on the go-to-market patterns he's seen over the last year of working closely with some incredible founders. Our paths first crossed in 2019 when Mecca joined AngelTrack, a program we run at first round that provides curriculum and community for angel investors. What immediately stood out is that Mecca has been both a company's early stage sales hire at Stripe as it scaled and matured at SalesOrg, and also a VP leading a 100-person sales org, most recently at Mixpanel. It's a rare combination that isn't often found in an early-stage investor, and it means he has tons of tactical playbooks that are especially helpful for technical or product-oriented founders looking to go from zero to their first couple million dollars in revenue. In today's conversation, we start by digging into his playbook for founder-led sales, from what a great first customer conversation looks like, to how to self-diagnose what went wrong so you can get 1% better with every conversation. Next, we dive into what makes for a good sales rep. Mecca shares great advice for founders looking to make their first sales hire, including the leveling mistake that's easy to make, how to figure out what good looks like when you don't have a sales background, and what to ask in the interview and in reference calls. He also shares thoughts on comp and the leading indicators to look for after onboarding. We then dig into structuring early pilots, tackling everything from what makes a good design partner to how to make sure your ICP is well-defined enough. We also cover some helpful tactics for customer success, which Mecca finds is often the most overlooked aspect of go-to-market. Throughout the conversation, we also touch on how Mecca's experiences in sales and go-to-market have translated into his first year as a VC, and what things have been surprisingly similar. We end on his advice for startup folks looking to transition into venture. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and now my conversation with Mecca. 
So you made it a year. You're still here. Exciting, right? It is. You've had to deal with me for 11 months and we're still here. Miracles do happen. One of the unique aspects I think about when you transition from company building to investing is you often go from depth to breadth and you get to meet so many founders who are all different. The companies are different. The cultures are different. And you get to work with many of them. And so I thought an interesting place to start might be some of the patterns that you've seen now that you've been working closely with a number of different companies, particularly around go-to-market and bringing first products to market. What are the types of things that you've seen as recurring themes or patterns in this first year of investing and partnering with founders? First, I'd say a lot of people face the same problems. And whether it's a consumer company, whether it's a vertical SaaS, whether it's B2B2C, a lot of the founding problems are the same. I think many of our founders are facing hiring challenges. How do I hire the right people? What do they look like? Where do I find them? How do I get more people using my product? Top of funnel demand. How should I be measuring success? What is really most important right now? How do I know when I've hit product market fit? And for people who are starting to think ahead, they say, what story do I need to tell if I want to raise the next round of funding? What are these key milestones that I'm looking for? And as I reflect across all of the investments that I've made and I've seen the other partners around the table make, all of these companies are facing very, very similar challenges. And so maybe we could take a couple of those in turn and potentially start with some of the early go-to-market stuff as kind of a proxy metric, getting your first 100K and then a million dollars in recurring revenue. What's sort of the playbook that you've developed or the ideas that you tend to share in these working sessions with founders? I think for a lot of people, this is the first time they're really in the driver's seat of putting revenue on the table. You see people coming from technical backgrounds who all of a sudden are forced into founder-led sales. So I always try to simplify what they're doing in terms of key steps in the process. So can we really take the sales funnel and split it apart and say, there's four key areas here, awareness, discovery, I kind of group evaluation, intent, and purchase together, and then loyalty. And for some founders, there'll be a couple of things where, okay, we've got this. We have no problems here. For others, they'll say, okay, I have an awareness issue. Where do I start? And so I like to try to diagnose things by splitting it up into the chunks of the buyer journey or the chunks of the seller journey, and then start to problem solve and troubleshoot from there. What does that diagnostic look like? Is that just based on your own pattern recognition or for a founder who you haven't partnered with that's listening and says, I don't think my go-to-market in the early days is firing on all cylinders. How do I know across those handful of parts of the funnel where the problem is? Yeah, it really depends how much work they've done. So I'll often just say, hey, do you have a series of dashboards or do you have a Excel sheet with the key metrics that you're looking at? And I'll usually try to start there, look at the 30,000 foot. And for some people, they'll have a clear funnel. They'll know what their stage gates are. They'll know what their conversion rates are. For other people, they'll say, oh, I don't even have one. Or I have this Word document where I've put a couple of customers down, but I haven't really thought in that way. And so you need to understand, like, are we starting from square one? Are we square starting from second base? And really start to troubleshoot from really where the founders are beginning at. And so for a founder that just has sort of a Google Doc with a few different steps in it, and they want to put together an MVP of their getting to a million in recurring revenue dashboard, what should be in there? What should they be tracking? 
I mean, I think at the highest level you can track, if you essentially know what your average contract value is and you know how many customers you hope to have, and then you think about roughly how many conversations do I need to have? Like, do I think I have a product that has a 5% success rate of first hearing about the product to actually purchasing, or is it closer to 15 or 20%? And so just doing some rough back the envelope math around what does that look like if I have a couple of large users or if I'm a self-serve SMB product and I'm going to expect to have hundreds of really small users paying me a lot more? A lot of the founders you tend to partner with are product or technology oriented versus sales oriented. And I'd be interested, do you think that most people from any background can get exceptionally good at sales or is it there are certain people that are wired for it and certain people that aren't? I almost think about this as a intercept versus slope. I think there are some people who start on a higher intercept. They've done this before. But I think anyone, and especially founders, I think any founder can be a good early salesperson for their product. And I say this because as a founder, you've got a couple of superpowers. One, you probably care more deeply about this problem than many people that a customer have ever met with before. Two, you have some pattern recognition. You probably can go to a person and say, I've talked to five or six of your peers and I can educate you on how they've tried to solve the problems, what things they've tripped over. That value add of being able to share with someone what everyone else in their same shoes is doing can be incredibly valuable. And for many of these startup founders, they are trying to solve the problem in a new way. And I think for most curious people who have hair on fire problems, they would love to talk to somebody who's really deep on the problem and can start to educate them about different ways they might solve it. If you were to create your own Mecca's Academy for technical founders that have not sold before, what are sort of the parts of that experience? What are the important concepts that maybe as a director of engineering a company X transitioning into a founder that has to bring a product to market? What are the pillars that you would coach them on? So I think one is process, and I think this should be an easy one. Be very, very process-oriented and measure. So create your funnel, make sure you understand how many shots on goal you're having, make sure you're categorizing why folks are excited, why they're not excited. So make sure you, you walk out of every meeting and you have a concrete takeaway of this was good because of X or this was bad because of Y. I think for many people too, like sales is part art and part science. And I truly believe that you can get 1% better each time. So in addition to understanding what you're hearing from your customers, you should be taking a real in-depth look at yourself and saying, what did I do well on that call? There's this other piece where many founders, their company is their baby. They wake up, it's all that they think about. And I think oftentimes you can be in front of a prospect, you can be in front of a customer, and you just really want to talk about your baby and what you've built and how beautiful your baby is. What I think is really important is you step back, take off your founder hat, and make sure that you're coming to this conversation from a customer-centric landscape. You're understanding, you're listening to their problems. No one cares what you do. They just want to know, can you solve their problem? And sometimes you need to step away from your business and really put yourself in their shoes and start to speak their language. What does a great first conversation look like in the context of an early product early in the company's life? I mean, ideally, I think if you're on a 30-minute phone call, you're talking for less than 25% of that call. You should be doing deep discovery. For me, I'm setting an agenda at the very beginning. I'm doing some bit of small talk to build a relationship. I'm doing a little bit of informing this person where I'm coming from, why I'm passionate about this, why I think I might be able to help them. And then I'm spending the next 25 minutes 
asking open-ended questions to do deep discovery to really understand how problematic is this? What have they tried before? What solutions have worked? To really help inform what angle I'm going to pitch my product or how I'm going to build my product. And then usually at the last couple of minutes, you're trying to make sure that you're saving times for next steps and next, next steps. You basically want to say, hey, it sounds like, you know, I took these things away from the conversation. Summarize it. Make sure you're on the same page. You always want to make sure that in every conversation, you're walking closer to a, yes, this product may make sense for this customer, or no, this does not make sense, and I'm going to save that person time, and I'm going to save myself time. The yeses are great. The nos are great. The maybes will absolutely kill you over time. On that note, how do you think about if you, in the early days, have a product problem, or you've just picked the wrong customer or customer segmentation? That's hard because it's funny. You can have a beautiful product, but if you're selling it to the wrong audience, it's going to look like you have a horrible product. And so there's a little bit that goes in it upfront of, you know, I'm always telling my founders to do less or do more for fewer people. And so getting really, really targeted on sort of that red hot core of what you believe your customer is. And you can always work your way out from there. But the common failure mode I see is, Someone just wants to get to five customers or someone just wants to sneak by $100,000 in ARR. So they are having a conversation with everyone under the moon. And while I think that as companies grow and as they're more successful, they can take on more, I think at the beginning, you want to be very, very focused on a laser focused ICP. You want to understand, you want to be able to say, my customer looks like X. They hang out, you know, in Y places, they have this problem, their company's probably this big, like you need to be able to draw four or five criteria and tell someone, articulate, this is what my customer looks like, and this is how I'm going to sell to them. You mentioned a minute ago, the compounding benefit of obsessively trying to get better at sales every day. How, if you're the only person on the call, do you sort of diagnose what went well and what didn't and what you're going to change in the future? First, you can make sure you're not the only one on the call. There's a number of tools that will transcribe some of these conversations. There are a number of products that sales organizations use that will actually tell you about the responses that folks on the other side of the conversation are having to things that you say. But even if you don't leverage any of these things, like the second you see someone multitasking, probably a sign that you're not talking about something really, really important. And so I think it takes some EQ to just see where do people's ears pick up? I think the other thing too is like, where are people asking you a ton of questions? If they're just nodding their head, yes, yes, and you're not getting much engagement back, probably not a good sign. If they're asking the next layer of detailed question, it's probably a sign that whatever you're talking about is perking up their ears for some reason. What do you think about the role of charisma in selling? Is it overhyped, underhyped? I mean, I'd rather have charisma than not have charisma. Some of the most successful sales reps I've seen, you see them in two archetypes. There is definitely the person where everyone loves Cindy. And she could have a conversation with a brick wall and the warmth and energy just exudes. I've also seen the person who is like the genius who cuts straight to the chase. But when they start talking, they know so much about that customer's unique problem. They know so much about the product that the success comes from their expertise. And while there's some level of product knowledge that you have to have, and there's some level of charisma, EQ, bedside manner that you have to have, people still buy from individuals. And so while the age of relationship selling, I think, is gone away and people aren't selling over steak dinners and golf rounds, I do still think people do tend to buy from people that they enjoy their conversation with. And that enjoyment usually comes from learning something and also just like having a decent person on the other end. 
So if you're in that second bucket, do you think they should work on becoming more charismatic or they should just lean into their strengths of being a subject matter expert? I mean, I say you always lean into your strengths, but if you have a huge deficiency, (laughs) it probably helps to try to work on it a little bit. You don't want to work on it so much that you lean away from the things that you're really good at. But I got some of this feedback from a customer who was talking to one of my founders who said, wow, they're really, really bright, but man, they just jumped right in and it felt like a transactional relationship. And with early stage selling many times, you are asking these people to put their faith in you. The business is essentially you, maybe a few other people and getting someone over that line to trust a two person company I think it really does take some charisma and some people skills. And I would focus on building some relationships up front. Switching gears slightly, in all the different reps and AEs that you've worked with, what do you think tends to separate good people from the truly exceptional ones? This is easy and it's going to sound so cliche, but it's about hustle. In sales, you can always prepare a little bit more for your conversation. You can always send one more outbound email. You can always obsess over a detail. You can always try your pitch on a colleague or someone else before you get in and actually have the game time situation. And so it's so hard. There are certain things that everyone, like there's a baseline level of intelligence. There's a baseline level of product understanding that matters. But I think so many of those bars are are actually pretty low. And what I've seen really differentiate people is it's just hustle. I think the hustle actually oftentimes comes out in the preparation for the meeting You see somebody who spends five minutes getting ready, who just does a quick LinkedIn search. And you see somebody else who like listens to the podcast that their buyer was on and uses that, or they think about what technology stack that company is on and figure out like, how is my product going to plug in there? There's no shortage of preparation that you can do before a meeting. And then after a meeting too, how quickly you follow up, how detailed those follow-up actions are. I say that sales is a science because so much of this is easy to do. It just takes time and effort and some attention to detail. You talked just a second ago a little bit about this, but assuming you have somebody that has an unbelievable amount of drive, but they don't know where those inputs or effort should be focused around the sales process, can you walk through some of the areas when you look at the top 1% of sellers And maybe an interesting way to kind of go about it is the story of the life of a customer. What is that person doing or what coaching would you give that 1% person around the life cycle of an opportunity? So I think that 1% person is good at every step in the process. I've seen some salespeople who are really good at the contract negotiation, which is a really important part. I've seen other salespeople who are exceptional at discovery. I've seen other people who are really good at like the evaluation and and intent where they're great at crafting the solution and showing how this product will fit into what's happening at the company right now. And I think those 1% people, they are really great at every step. They are great at awareness. They're great evaluation. They're great at the negotiation. They're great at setting the customer up for success and loyalty down the line. And what I've seen is that the people who are best They try to learn from others. There's no one pathway to success. And I think a lot of people become hybrids of some of the best people that they've seen in each little format. And they're sponges. They're just absolutely trying to figure out, I saw you use this line with this product and it worked really well. I'm going to jot this down and I'm going to start using that when I get that objection and that's how I handle it. Or I saw the way you talked about our competitor and how you just tweaked the framing enough that made a customer's eyes light up and 
some of that you can get by just doing it over and over again, again, getting 1% better every day. But I love people who get 5% better every day by learning from people who've been doing this for a while. And so kind of maybe to pick one of those apart, what does top 1% prep look like before a first call? So I think obviously you not only prepare for the people who are going to be on the call, but you also prepare for the people who you believe will be stakeholders to that purchase. So imagine you're selling a enterprise security product. There's probably going to be someone on legal as well as someone on procurement. And so even if someone on IT just shows up, you've also thought about those other people who they're going to have to convince that this is the right solution. And whether it's the follow-up materials from call one, but you're sharing things that not only help you convince the persona you talk to, but the two other people you know they're going to have to talk to, even if you don't, they don't come up in the conversation. It's almost like looking around a corner and saying, not only am I really good at this step in the process today, this discovery call, answering these specific questions, but I can almost do a little bit of inception and say, I'm going to leave you with all the stuff that we talked about, our action items. And I'm also going to leave you with these other two things that I think are really interesting. And I know that you're going to use that internally to help move this conversation down the line. I'm curious how your set of experiences around sales and go-to-market have translated to your first year as a VC. Do you think about that top 1% rep behavior as it relates to trying to behave as a top 1%? What are the rituals or habits that you feel are serving you well thus far? In early stage venture, because of the fact that we invest in so few of the opportunities that we see, it looks a lot like an enterprise sales pipeline where you need to have a lot of people who are in the awareness bucket, who are in the discovery bucket in order to get one to two signed contracts or founders who want to partner with us. And anytime you're in something that has such a low success rate, again, I think you've got to be incredibly focused on the process and not just the outcome. So what are the frameworks that I'm using on a day in day out basis? You need to take as much pride in a first meeting that goes nowhere as a first meeting that, you know, is a second time founder who's going to have their choice of five different venture firms to choose from. You need to bring your A game to every single meeting. And I think about this, we used to always talk about customers who'd come in, you'd be taking a demo call and you would think that at best, this probably isn't going to go anywhere. And if it does, it's a really small ACV contract. And sometimes out of nowhere, this person says, I signed up with this email address, but I actually represent Microsoft or I actually represent Uber. And what you saw here was, you know, just my personal side project. And so because of the fact that you never know when these diamonds in the rough are going to come out of nowhere, I think it behooves you to prepare for every single interaction like it's your Super Bowl, like there's a million dollar contract hanging in the balance and you can never slack off. You've got to bring 120% to every single interaction. You know, another thing I think about as an investor that I thought about on sales is the selling process an investor starts on email one. You just emailed me with a deck. I've never met you before, but ideally I'm responding as quickly as possible in an amazing tone and we're getting a meeting set right away. On the first call, rather than just sitting back and having you pitch, I'm I'm giving you more information about why I think myself and first round are an amazing partner to the most ambitious founders. And so you can't start selling halfway down the line. Every single interaction, every single process is this truth-seeking exercise where both people are getting to know each other better and figuring out, is there something unique here and special here? So have you found that the mapping from the last chapter of your career is surprisingly similar? Yeah. 
Maybe it's just the unique way that we practice venture at first round, but we have a ton of metrics. Like we've been doing this for a really long time and we measure everything and we try to get better every single day. And I think if you talk to any SMB or mid-market sales leader, they're thinking the same way. They know what their best reps first call to close ratio is. They know sort of what the talk time should be on an average meeting. They know exactly how much pipeline they need to create in Q1 in order to make sure that they're sort of meeting their Q4 goals. Like they're thinking about everything as a machine. There's inputs and outputs. Anytime something is off or there's an anomaly, they're trying to understand, okay, why is this good anomaly happening? Why is this bad anomaly happening? And so I spend a lot of time looking at my funnel of opportunities and and what things I invest in. In the sales world, every quarter you're looking at all of your losses and you're seeing who did I lose to and why? What product feature? What can we do differently? And so I feel lucky that all of the founders that I've wanted to partner with today have chosen to work with First Round and myself, but I guarantee you after that first loss, I'm going to obsess over what could I and should I have done differently in order to make sure that that ended up in the win column. So looping back to one of the first things we were talking about when you were mentioning a bunch of the areas or patterns that you've noticed across all the companies that you've been working with is hiring. And I know one of the areas you spent a lot of time on is that first go to market or first sales hire. I feel like on a weekly basis, there's a founder that's been doing founder led sales and they're trying to figure out who they should hire, or maybe they hired somebody and they're asking you to give feedback on the person. What are your sort of frameworks or lenses for that founder that has gotten their first 100K, 500K, million dollars, whatever in revenue, and they want to make their first hire? So there's a couple things here. I think the first one is make sure you hire someone who is stage appropriate. And so I can imagine as a founder, it might be tempting to say, I have this VP of sales who's been at Salesforce for 10 years and I'm in a B2B SaaS world, this person is going to be great to be my first salesperson or be my first sales leader. And I think more often than not, that would be a huge mistake. And that's because that VP probably has been a manager of manager of managers and hasn't closed a deal themselves in a really long time. And for most of these early sales hires, what they need to be is somebody who's going to go out and actually be closing business for 80% of their time. And 20% of their time, they're starting to think about the system, the organism, what we can do to make this thing repeatable. And so you really want somebody who's actually either been an exceptional IC and who has spent a bunch of time coaching and mentoring and spinning up new people. Or you want somebody who maybe they've had their first manager gig, or maybe they're still in the player coach world where they're responsible for a team quota, but they also have an individual quota. You just want somebody who's going to be excited about and really good about the things that are mission critical today. And oftentimes I'll ask a founder like, okay, obviously you could hire lots of different people. What's the one thing you need this person to do? Sometimes they'll say it's like set up Salesforce, think about our yearly planning, but most of the time it's like close business. And so when you think about that, probably would want to have somebody who recently or still is on the front lines closing business. So let's say you nailed that spec. How do you help a technical founder, product-oriented founder know what good looks like and the difference between let's say a sales rep that has seven years of experience at a similar type of company to yours. So the shape of the deal that you do is somewhat similar. You plot all those people out and they're stars and they're are weak performers. And if you've never hired for it before, it's hard to know what great looks like. First, I would just ask the question of how are you pacing towards your number? 
what was your percent to target over the last four or five quarters or years, depending on what their comp cycle was based off of. Make sure that when you do reference checks, those numbers check out with the manager. There's obviously a lot of questions and things that you can look stylistically that are forward looking to see, will this person be successful selling my product to my customers? But I also think there's something backwards looking of how many times has this person missed their number if they've ever missed it at all. And you want, I think, especially for some of the sales reps that you want to hire, I think you want somebody who's achievement oriented and who has been successful in the past. There are other things that I would be doing too, like past success doesn't necessarily, they'll be successful selling your product. So you need to figure out whether or not their last experience is 0%, 50%, or 100% overlap with what you're selling. And I would say one persona is that somewhat similar, are they wildly different? I think two, I would be thinking about the complexity. Selling ads is very different than selling a developer API or enterprise security. Three, I'd be looking at who they're selling it to and the sales cycle on which that is. Are they going from a transactional two-call, three-call close that's a 15-day sales cycle? Or is this someone who comes from a, these sales cycles are six months, a year, 18 months, stakeholder mapping, get the bill through Congress type of sale? And so... The prior experience, the more degrees of overlap there are with um, what you're currently doing and what they did before, I think you can feel more comfortable that that success will translate into yours. But if you're taking someone from somewhere completely different, I don't know how much faith you can put into that prior success translating to where you are today. I also think that I'm always interviewing too for intellectual horsepower curiosity, ability to think on the fly, solve type two problems, problems that are evolving quickly, because that's the name of the game at a startup. You're going to hire someone, you're going to think that the audience is X and you're going to sell it in Y, but that person is going to need to evolve and adapt. And I think that there are some people who want the playbook. They say, give me the playbook and I'll execute on this script that you're giving me and reaching out to these other people. I think there's others who look at it and say, hey, this playbook is all messed up. What if we tried this instead of that? And they slowly iterate on a process. And I'm oftentimes like leaning towards that person who's going to be willing to take what's given and make it better and tear it apart. How does this set of ideas translate to what you think a good recruiting end-to-end process should look like for this specific role? For me, this process, again, is one of mutual discovery where you are learning a lot about them, their past successes and failures and how they operate. And they're learning about you as a leader as a company, as a sales cycle. I often think it's really interesting for founders to share some of the problems that they're facing. So if I'm a a founder, I'm trying to hire my first sales rep, I'd probably say, I'm going to pitch XYZ company on Friday. Help me understand how I should prep. Okay, cool. Walk me through that. How should I think about this 45 minute meeting? What should I do in the meeting? What should I do after the meeting? How do I push to a sale? And you ask this question five times, you'll get five very, very different answers. You'll be able to see the depth and the sort of ingenuity and the creativity of different folks who's thinking outside of the box, giving you new ideas that you haven't thought of, and who's just saying the standard rinse and repeat. Here's the standard template that I send to everyone first. You'll see the difference between a high quality response and an average one very quickly. Are there other questions you've found or exercises that you like to do with this type of role that you found are particularly useful? I mean, I love describing what I'm currently doing and asking someone ask 
to tell me how can I improve? What's the worst thing that I'm doing here? And if you're a founder and you're doing founder-led sales and you have no sales expertise and you're talking to somebody who's been selling for the last seven years, hopefully there's something that they can pick up on that can make you better in your job. And I think if the person can't really, probably not the right hire. What do you like to do specifically on reference calls for this specific role? A couple of things. I think one, I want to make sure what they told me was true on sort of their achievement to target. I think two, I want to make sure the references all are painting the same picture. That whether you talk to a peer, a boss, or someone that they've managed, you're still getting the same rough idea of like a human. What I hate to see is when the manager has a very, very different perspective than someone who was their direct report, or the peer has a very different perspective there. I'm oftentimes looking to figure out why people make the decisions they make at the times that they make. And I think if these folks have worked really closely with these people, hopefully they can give you a sense of those transitions. And so I'm really just trying to understand who am I marrying for the next however many years? Who am I putting the faith of my company into? And I think the other thing about this too is integrity, values are really important. You sometimes see salespeople doing whatever it takes to get a sale across the finish line. And for any organization I've been a part of, I've always said, hey, we are customer first. If there is a customer priority and our priority, they come before we do. And you just want to make sure that people aren't going to be willing to make those trade-offs and those shortcuts in the name of a higher sales bonus. If we transition to, let's assume you find somebody that you're excited about, a couple things sort of come up. One is, how do you think about comp structure in those very early days when you don't necessarily have a scalable, repeatable process? And two, how do you think about leading indicators that this person is going to be wildly successful or leading indicators that I made a hiring error? On that first piece on sales comp, I think people are often tempted to immediately jump to what a mature sales compensation process looks like. So you might say of a person's on-target earnings at a mature company, half of it will be base salary and half of it will be incentive-based. I think that's a huge mistake for early sales. I would never set a target where 50% of someone's comp is at risk unless I have reasonable certainty that they are able to achieve that target. So you need to think about where you are as a company. Do you have that level of insight? I think especially with early stage sales too, and anyone who's going to be joining, be the fifth or 10th employee and the first salesperson, I think you want them incentivized by the equity value in the company. Sometimes they may need to make a trade-off on the revenue standpoint that's worse for them in the short term, but better for a company in the long run. So I think you sometimes really want to punt that can down the road until you have clarity that you can do it. One of the things that I've done in the past is before rolling out any plan, I shadow that plan for the first quarter or for the second quarter. I make sure I give them a target. I say, hey, we would have hypothetically set this target. Here are the dashboards to measure it. And then we check in middle of quarter, end of quarter. Like, did that target make sense? And was it in the realm of reasonableness? You don't want people to be 10% to target. You also don't want people to be 500% to target. That probably means you set the wrong target. The other piece that I would say is like, you get what you comp for. So just really make sure that the plan you're building is aligned with the most important thing for the company at that stage. For maybe the first six months or a year, you just have base comp plus equity and you kind of leave it alone. Sometimes I'll do a spiff where I say your expected comp is going to be paid out in base salary. But if you achieve this hurdle rate that I think of as an A or an A plus, 
here's a small cash bonus or here's an extra equity grant for going above and beyond. I think the other thing that you can do, and which I think is really important, is to make sure that you have interim checkpoints at quarter one, quarter two, quarter three. You should be giving them qualitative and quantitative goals. It could just be, I would expect you to have closed this number of deals by this time. It might be, I expect you to have our value proposition down and objection handling with our five key competitors down after the first 30 days. So there's a bunch of different qualitative things that you can do to say, if you're on track to being a good and productive person here, you will meet some of these stage gates. And I think combining some qualitative things, especially in the early days with quantitative as folks get further up the ramp curve is sort of the right way to set both parties up for success. And do you think about those early goals and targets based on what the founder-led sales motion looked like? Or is it more, quote, industry best practice or some simplistic framework to get your arms around what is reasonable for that first go-to-market hire? I think you use the founder-led sales metrics to inform what it should be. But in some cases, you can imagine a founder being able to get into rooms that a first a founding sales rep will not be able to get into. On another side, you might say, hey, I'm, I was doing founder-led sales, but I'm really bad at it. And I would expect the conversion rate to go up when you hire someone. So you really got to think about the uniqueness of your situation, where you are as a business and who you're bringing in. But I would inform it somewhat with what I've learned by being on the front lines with our customers over time. What else should a founder be thinking about when he or she is looking for leading indicators that this was the right or wrong hire? I think a lot of it is actually going to be cross-functional. So the right early stage salesperson, like this isn't, hey, salesperson, I'm hiring you. You need to go get me a million in revenue and you go sit in the corner and like deliver us cash. (laughs) I think the best early salespeople are fundamental to all parts of the company. Ideally, they're helping inform the product roadmap. Ideally, they're saying, I'm talking to customers every day and this is what I'm hearing. This is when I'm seeing their eyes light up. This is what I'm hearing they wish we had. And so they should be really an integral part in providing feedback to product and engineering, to customer support, to other parts of of the house. And I think if they're doing that, that is a really good first step. Like you just want them to be an integral part of the company. I think you'll start to see, or hopefully start to see that they're having meetings with companies that you think of that fit your persona. You'll start to see them closing opportunities here, here and there. And so I'd be measuring it qualitatively and quantitatively. Do you think that most founders just gut instinct about whether the person is working or not tends to be accurate or they're so uncalibrated, it's a bit scattershot? I've seen it all over the map. I think there are some founders who've worked in somewhat early stage companies before and have seen what early stage reps look like. And I think there are other people who have not. And so you need to look inside yourself and say, do I know what good or great looks like? Or am I going to be this person who is so used to the way that I did things. And if someone comes in and does them in a different way, the alarm bells are going to be going off. So what about in the inverse? How should a rep or sales leader think about whether being that first go-to-market hire is for him or her? I think it's a lot about thinking about what brings you joy and passion and energy and what your ultimate career goals are. I think being an early stage salesperson can be such a unique opportunity and you can learn so much about different things, but it is a very different job than joining a 500 person company 
where you're going to be the eighth or ninth sales rep and you know what the ramp curve looks like, you know what the playbook looks like, you have all the objection handling, you have all the legal contract, the machine is built for you. Being an early stage salesperson is like trying to build a plane while you're flying it, which feels almost impossible. I I think that's what early stage sales feels like. It feels really, really hard. It feels like you're being asked to do two impossible things at once. What do you think that person's process should look like to decide whether the opportunity is right for him or her? That's easy. For me, it's twofold. One, spending a ton of time with the founding team and figuring out whether or not you would work well together. In early stage startups, so much of the value is driven from the founding team. And if you don't believe in them, if you don't see them scaling, you shouldn't join that company. The second piece I'd be looking at is how good is my product? And I would be trying to understand who my customers are, how big their pain is, and what other options that they have. I only want to work somewhere that is a category leading product and company. You don't want to be at the third best solution. It is amazing how in almost any role, most candidates don't talk to customers or potential customers. Regardless of what you're doing, understanding deeply what the customer thinks about this product is just unbelievably valuable. It is. For every job that I've ever even thought about, I've always tried to talk to customers to understand what they think of that company, what they do well, and what could they improve on. So switching gears a little bit, something we haven't yet talked about in this early go-to-market phases is thinking about things like early pilots and design partners and how that intersects with the zero-to-one product building. I'm interested, what are some do's or don'ts or some of your own lessons learned about getting those first design partners, picking them, making them successful, sort of anything in that area? I think I've said this before, but first I would say do less identify the most important issue and tackle it. Trying to tackle multiple things at the same time can really be tough. If you think about Salesforce, Salesforce has multiple jobs to be done. One, it's a revenue forecasting tool for managers. Two, it's the ultimate CRM for sales reps so they understand who I need to talk to and what daily behaviors I have. If I were trying to build a new CRM, I would focus on one piece of that. I would either focus on the revenue forecasting piece, or I'd really focus on being a better tool for sales reps to manage who they're talking to and when. But out of the gates, trying to be both things, trying to say, I'm going to come in here as a scrappy startup and try to spread my little tiny resources across the same surface area that a multi-thousand person organization is. It's bonkers. Like There's no way you're going to be successful there. I think also choose the team that you're working for. Like Work with a really small core team. In terms of the design partner side? Yeah. On the design partner side, figure out who is the person that I care most about their feedback and make sure you're checking in with that person frequently versus... I've seen people who spread the love across too many people. And again, especially with a design partner, you're going to get different feedback, again, from that sales manager versus that sales rep. If you ask the sales manager, what's the most important thing? They'll say one thing. If you ask sales op, what's the most important thing? They'll say another thing. If you ask a rep or an SDR, what's the most important thing? They'll have different answers. So it just gets too hard to balance all of those stakeholders' opinions. You need to choose who you're going to be best in class for and then just try to be table stakes for everybody else. What else makes a great design partner? One is this small team that you can, I guess, quasi-embed and co-build with. 
Are there other leading indicators that this company and or team might be a good fit of your, call it five design partners or however many you might have? I think one, there's something from a firmer graphics point of view. Ideally, they're representative of this ICP that you're going to go build for, where if you go and build for this company, this company is a flag bearer for a bunch of others. And by saying, hey, I successfully stood up a product or pilot for this company, and this is the results that they're having, you would love for a hundred, a thousand other companies to say, hey, if it's good enough for them, this probably fits our use case. I would also say that early stage companies, there's a lot that's written in pencil. And there are some people and companies who are okay with a little bit of a YOLO, this is half-baked attitude. There are other companies where that will drive them up the wall. I love working with design partners who have worked with other early stage startups and had successful pilots there. Is that the best proxy is they've done it before? Or how do you know if somebody is open to a half-baked solution? Sometimes it's that they've done it before. Other times it's that whatever they're doing right now is so painful, they would do anything to change it. And so you're also, this is the third piece is ideally the design partner has a hair on fire problem that they needed to solve yesterday. And that will be transformational for their business if you solve it. One of the things we touched on a number of times is the importance of ICP. We haven't yet talked about how does somebody figure that out or make sure they either have the right ICP, it's appropriately narrow, it's appropriately defined, those types of things. First, I'd try to write it down. Like I've forced people to write down what their ICP is and give me an example of 20 of it, 50 of it. Who is the persona? What is the company size? What do they do? Another piece I would say is sometimes you can't shortcut this. You start to hone in on your ICP by having tens of hundreds of customer calls and you start to see people want to rip it out of your hands. You start to see the visceral anger and what's happening right now in this space and how much they would want to see something different. And I always like, I would just think about creating a big Excel sheet with a list of who I'm talking to, the companies, and then maybe it's in a green, yellow, red, maybe it's a one, two, three, but just score how those conversations look and then start to pivot, start to sort by all of the greens. And ideally you start to say, oh, okay, the people who I'm selling to is this persona. They're at this size company. They're at this type of company. You'll just start to see the same things repeat over and over and over again. Going back to kind of this dance between early product and customers and getting the right product built correctly for the right customers and trying to figure out if you have a product problem or a customer or ICP definition problem. Do you tend to find that there's a pattern to one of those? Meaning in most cases, it's actually a product problem or in most cases, it's actually a customer problem or is it completely random and idiosyncratic? My hunch is that most of the time it is a product problem. And I say this because if I had built an amazing product and I went and told someone who might be a buyer, here's what I have and they're not interested. If I had a really good product, I think they'd be able to tell me, hey, I'm not interested, but Jane down the road would love this thing. Or I remember the situation I was in four years ago, and this product would be great for me then. Or in three more years, or in when I have 20 more sales reps, this is exactly what I'd be looking for. And so I often find if you build a product with value, People will somehow stumble upon you. They'll hear about you or someone will 
repoint you in, in another direction. What advice do you give to founders who are getting a lot of no's? In the sense that as human beings, we don't like to be told no. And I think a lot of product people and technical folks don't like sales because it's not delightful to have people constantly telling you no. And particularly in the early days, it could be 90% of the people that you're talking to are saying no. Do you have a way to help somebody build that resilience in the early days if it's not it's not an experience they've had? I mean, I don't think there's a way to build the resilience other than to just tell people to get back in there and get slapped in the face again. There's a slight silver lining, which is each slap in the face makes you somewhat more educated where you can take away what is the loss reason and is this something that I can change or I can work on or is this something that I can't? And if it's something that you can work on and you keep hearing the same thing over again, you're going to have this eureka moment where it's like, oh, okay, I've gotten the 15th no because I'm missing this product feature. I'm going to go build this product feature. And so sales is a really, really tough profession. Being an early stage founder and doing founder-led sales, like you're going to get a lot of no's. But I think those no's are slowly giving you breadcrumbs towards the treasure chest that you're looking for. You can't shortcut product market fit. And one of the things that you see when you're in some of these really large companies, when I really reflect on my time at Stripe, we got so many no's as we were going up market. But those no's just made us all better as individuals. They made us better as a company. And they're part of the process. And you just can't short circuit it. So an area we haven't yet explored is what great looks like after you have your first few customers. You probably don't yet have a customer success function built out. But maybe every first five or 10 customers, maybe you're halfway through some pilots. How should a founding team think about that work in the early days? It's funny you ask that because I think it is one of the things that often gets most overlooked. And it's surprising because you have these people that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into convincing to be a design partner. And then you sort of just say, okay, now time to focus on net new logos. And one, I think if you don't continue to satisfy those initial crop of people, you're really dead in the water. I mean, imagine a new customer comes in and you're trying to convince them to work with this early stage startup. And you said, hey, I have these five design partners. And the Valley's small, tech is small. They call those partners and they say, yeah, you know what? The product was really great in the beginning, but it started to fail me and no one's answering my questions. It is mission critical. And I always tell people, I don't care who's doing it, whether it's you, whether it's the engineering team, whether it's the sales team, you really need to focus on making sure a year from now that customer still is as excited about you as they were when they first decided to agree to be a design partner. And so loyalty, and I think that if you rewind, if you think about, okay, I'm a year later from a design partnership and this person is renewing their contract or that contract is expanding, that yes starts on day one. It starts in how you get this person on board. It starts in the monthly or quarterly check-ins that you have. It continues with the customer support experience that they have anytime they run into issues. And so you can't start thinking about the renewal a quarter beforehand. If that's when you start, it's too late. How do you think about the opportunity to tactically provide excellent customer service or support? And it could be speediness of responses. It could be speed to incorporate early feedback in kind of one bucket. And the other that I think is a little bit 
in the early days, maybe under leverage, which is just the relationship and almost friendship that you have with that first 10 or 20 customers. You hit on a lot of the important pieces. So I'd say one, I was always measuring SLA. And not only is it time to first response, but it's also time to resolution. You want to make sure if someone says, you're mission critical to my infrastructure and I'm having this issue that someone responds right away, ideally with a it's solved, but if not with a it's solved, it's a we're going to solve it by this point. I think secondarily, the relationship piece, like I always thought about every single account having a champion and the champion is the person who put their name on the line for making this decision. It's the person who, if things go right, they are going to be champion. Maybe they get a promotion. If things go wrong, everyone's going to look at them. And so I'm building an authentic relationship with my champion I'm checking in to understand sort of how are they and how's the rest of their organization perceiving the product. I'm using these check-ins to hopefully get feedback for what could we be doing better? If nothing, what could we be doing next that we don't currently solve? And so you want to make sure that the company's happy. You want to make sure that the champion's happy and you need to be thinking about this holistically. You also ideally have set some sort of mutually agreed upon success criteria of If we pick our head up a year from now and we're really happy, what are we saying? And maybe it's usage, maybe it's like revenue won back. It really depends on your product, but you want to be able to be able to objectively agree that if we get to this point, this is a good thing and the partnership should continue. Are there any other rituals or best practices in those early days of customer success that you'd recommend or you've seen any of the founders that you've partnered with leverage that have been really impactful? I always love surprising and delighting my customers with things and celebrating the milestones that they meet, especially if my product enabled them, was a small piece in getting to that milestone. Again, if we take the CRM example, imagine that one of your customers gets to X million in revenue, like send them something, celebrate that moment. And maybe it's a quick reminder of, hey, there were a lot of people who contributed to this and this software vendor that I was using was a, was a small piece in it. Switching gears a little bit, what are the things that you've learned in this first year as an investor that you think would have been useful or served you as a startup employer exec had you known them? I think one would be the power of storytelling. I used to wonder sometimes why companies had these expensive all-hands meetings. And sometimes it felt like you didn't get any new information or sometimes because of the role that you were in, you felt like everything that was being told there was something that you already understood. But I think what I've really started to realize is, and especially in a remote world, how important it is for everyone to feel like they are uniquely bought into and contributing to the same mission. And I think what I've seen is the best founders have this ability to captivate audiences, bring them along, make sure people feel this excitement that's going on. And as a leader, as a manager, I know many people who just want to focus on operating and executing and selling and hiring. And sometimes people forget to communicate internally. And I think it's a huge mistake. I've been pushing a lot of my founders to say, remember, not everyone in your organization has the same context that you have and make sure that you are continually checking in, refreshing everyone on where we're going and where we are right now. What percent towards that mission are we? How did that click for you? 
in this role as an investor? I've seen a lot of people who are working on the same problem. And I've seen the ability of some people to make you feel like this is the world's biggest problem. And a solution to this would be like unlocking Nirvana. And I've seen other people who are working on the same problem and you just walk out of a meeting with far less enthusiasm. I've seen companies internally who have gone out and raised sub- subsequent rounds of fundraising where I was nervous that it was going to be a hard round to get done. I've seen others where if you look at the fundamentals of the business, they are doing exceptionally well. But if you don't communicate it right, if you don't paint that vision and that story right, other people might not be as excited. And so is the takeaway that when you think about your role as a go-to-market leader, you would have prioritized this selling, narrative setting, internal evangelizing more than you did? Yeah, I think it is. I think I did an okay job at continually reinforcing, especially if you think about being at a high growth company, you can look up one or two quarters later and say, oh, wow, 50% of my team is new and is turned over and didn't remember that talk that I gave at sales kickoff a year ago. And so the job never finishes. You can't expect other people to translate it to new people. You need to continue to refresh that, to reinvigorate, re-excite people about the challenge. If you think about someone who has been there, imagine you're at a startup and you've been there for three years and you're starting to feel like, wow, I've been working on this thing, just pounding away for three years. I think, again, you need to, as a leader, re-inspire those people and say, hey, remember three years ago when we were five people in a room and this was the problems that we were facing? Look at where we are now and look at the challenges we're facing. Like, There's so much more exciting. We've made so much more progress. And it's so easy when you're in the weeds operating to just get focused on tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And people really need to be able to step back, take the macro view and share that with employees. Because I think the people who are working with them are also probably very much focused on just like, what does my manager need me to get done for tomorrow? Similar to what we were talking about sales earlier, can someone get very good at this? Or are there people that are just, the classic example would be Steve Jobs. One of the talents and genius was this ability to weave a narrative that can get customers and employees really excited about what they're doing. Is it a muscle that can be exercised and developed? Or maybe to some small degree, you can get better, but true greatness is much more innate? Or how do you think about somebody deciding they are not doing a great job in this area and becoming world-class at it? I think you can get better at it. I think one, even if you just take a static message and you workshop a couple of different ways to get this message across, I guarantee you that the message comes across crisper and better on the fifth iteration of it versus the first iteration of it. Even if the language sounds somewhat similar, you see this with branding and marketing slogans, like just changing one word or changing the order can make a really big difference in how people perceive it. And it's something that I thought about a lot on my journey as a sales leader is I would really think about these quarterly kickoffs a quarter before they even happen, right after one would finish, I'd be thinking about, okay, what is the message that I want to give to my organization next time? What are the vignettes? And and during the quarter, I'd be thinking about, oh, this is a great example that I'm going to be able to tie in at our next quarterly kickoff. Or this is another example of what we talked about last quarter and someone actually living up to that ideal. So for me, it wasn't something that came just natural. It was something that I really had to prepare for. And I would start a notes document for months in advance. 
I thought maybe we could wrap up with a topic that I assume you get a lot of questions about. And instead of you answering them one off, you can just send them this recording to make your life a lot easier, which is for folks that are curious about venture or thinking about it for the first time, they've been a founder, they've been an exec. What sort of advice do you give them about your fresh eyes to the experience and Might it be something they would enjoy? Might it be something they would hate? Might it be something they could be great at? Might it be a struggle for them? If you were to kind of open source the zillions of people that have pinged you from time to time about, hey, I'm thinking about venture, what's kind of the stump speech that you figured out now, if you will? You know, a lot of people have been asking me, I'm I'm 12 months in and they're asking, how are you feeling about the job? And I can say that I've never been more fulfilled in a role. And for me, it combines a lot of things that I love. It combines really ambitious individuals inside our partnership and as founders working on the most interesting problems in the world and being able to be a coach to those people. And so I think the only way to figure out whether or not you would enjoy it is just doing the job. And for me, I started angel investing before I made my transition to full-time venture and being an angel investor convinced me that the next step in my career was to be an institutional investor. And so I wish I had started angel investing earlier. I think for folks who are at amazing companies or who have went to school with or have friends who are starting companies, just ask if you can invest, get involved, ask to see their fundraising doc, ask to just provide feedback. And you don't always need to do it with money. You can advise on the functional thing that you spend all of your time thinking about. I just wish I was on the field earlier. On that note, what are the things that have been surprisingly similar between angel investing and venture investing and what has felt just completely new to you? So there's a lot of similarities. I think the thing that has been new is the number of people who all need something from you all at the same time. And so as an angel, when you're thinking about how you can add value, oftentimes you're sending a really thoughtful email responding to the asks in an investor update that a company sends. And if you invest in 10 companies a year, maybe you're getting an update every couple of weeks. As an institutional investor, where you are, at least at first round, the closest partner to that founder, you are usually the first call. And sometimes all of these first calls are happening around the same time. Some of them you can solve. Some of them you're looking with inside the partnership for an answer. Others you're looking to friends that you've worked with before. And I think I've been a little bit surprised by just how deep our relationships are with our founders. And as an angel, even as a really, really valuable value-add angel, I think that that depth of that relationship with the founder pales in comparison to being the lead investor. I found that one of the really incredible things about investing in the style that we do is that you spend a decent portion of your week trying to help people figure things out and build a really exceptional company. The other really incredible thing is the learning that happens in the other direction from the founders that you get to partner with and the things that they teach you over time. And so maybe to wrap up, are there things that the founders you've worked with thus far have taught you in sort of a meta sense? Or is there a specific founder or moment that instilled something in you that you're taking with you or is useful to you? I mean, maybe this is a self-fulfilling prophecy and it says something about the people that I've backed, but... Founders have helped reinforce some of the beliefs inherent to me. One of them is this never get beat on hustle. And (laughs) 
I have a founder who I wake up to, they are on the East Coast, but I wake up to like 5 a.m. texts from this founder. It's funny. It's like the first thing they're thinking about is how to make their business better. And oftentimes, like, you know, I'll be sending them a response really late at night, West Coast, and they're still responding. And I start thinking about like, do they ever sleep? Like, what is going on? I just so respect that level of hustle. Or I was thinking about a founder the other day who was telling me about a prospect that they might lose. And (laughs) they sent me a text with just all of these explicits and these emojis. And they were like, I hate effing losing. I'm not going to lose this thing. And I just, again, it was one of these things like, I love that drive, that intensity, that passion. And so when you're at a larger company, I think you see those moments far less frequently. And now being at a place where we serve really, really small teams, where everyone on that team has that level of intensity, it's just reminded me of this mantra that that I really truly believe in, which is like, if you can control one thing, it's to never get beat on hustle. And yeah, these founders that I've partnered with have reminded me and, and live it day in and day out. Awesome. Great place to end. Thanks so much for joining. Excited to uh, have you on another year, another year from now. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully I'll make it another year and I'll, uh, I'll see you there. <laughs> there you go.